Hello and welcome to the Snapshot with Thanos May. This is Thanos May and we, this episode, are discussing the Electoral College and what that is going to look like with a very tight race between Governor Garland, Lieutenant Governor Jack Coulter, and Senator Trash all running to be the next President of the United States how similar they might be in their platforms, how their, I guess you could call it a debate performance at over at ABC News, um, sort of gave us a glimpse into the platforms and policies of the various candidates, and how this will translate into the results for the Electoral College, and we get into some discussions of some very possible outcomes of when uh, no one person reaches for the magic number of 14 electoral uh, college votes and what that means and how then the election would be solved and decided. So we are in this episode discussing that and sort of getting into some very interesting topics about how this election very likely may end up where it may go, and how that will look in the next coming days. So please enjoy this episode of Snapshot with Thanos May. All right, so now to go on to um, a little bit of a somewhat related topic, of course, is the presidential election. Today we saw sort of a, a tidbit of a, what can possibly be described as a four-person interview rather than a presidential debate was hosted um, by ABC and moderated by Steb. Um, those present were Governor Garland, um, Lieutenant Governor Jack Coulter, um, Teddy, who was a, I believe he was on the DC Council at the time, and then Senator Trash. Um, since this debate, however, uh, DC Councilor Teddy has dropped out of the race. Um, and resigned from his position on the DC Council. Yeah, he's essentially, as what many people say, has left public life. And so now it's it went from a momentarily four-person race to now back down to a three-person race. So, diving right into this interview, do you have any sort of overall um, comments to make about this and I, I'm, I'm calling it an interview because that's what it was this was not a debate <laughs> these these candidates didn't really touch on each other's policy they just answered I think three questions they did um I thought it was four but I could be wrong I didn't count yeah it wasn't they didn't get to a point of where they were responding to each other they were just asking the same general questions um, each. Any sort yeah. of general comments? Um, they all sounded very similar. All of the candidates had very similar responses to most of the issues. I think the issue where we saw the most differentiation was Senator Trash on his opinion on abortion. Uh, he was the only member of the field who talked about how abortion was unethical. Um, we saw some slight deviation between um, Teddy, who said that he was 100% for um, the right to choose, and the other two candidates who both talked about how they wanted to leave it to the states. 
and they would continue working with the states regardless of what they decided that this was a state level issue. I think that was really the only strong policy position that we saw really come out to differentiate them. Um, they all seemed very similar in the other policy statements they've given, at least in my reading. Yeah, it, that's what it really appears to be, especially on that abortion question, which is asked almost in every election of every candidate. But generally, when it comes to federal elections, most politicians give that answer that Lieutenant Governor Jack Coulter and Governor Garland gave, that it's been relatively relegated as a state's issue. Um, so, you, know, the, you know, the whole question of abortion is on the restrictions of it. You know, abortion bans, abortion restrictions, that type of thing is a state's uh, issue, is something that the states decide. And so asking it of a presidential candidate, um, I think, I mean, it's, I think it's very valid to know your presidential candidate's views on any kind of policy, but um, I, for one, want to know, you know, to know what the candidates' opinions are on their favorite um, ice cream, nah, you might want to know that. But it really has no bearing on whether or not how, what kind of president they're going to be. And I don't think that the question of restrictions on abortion is really going to elucidate of what kind of president they're going to be when it's not something that the president can really relegate or regulate, I should say. Yeah. I 100% agree. Um, it's a question that has to be asked just because it's almost the ritual of running for president. You have to face this question, but it's not really something that will end up mattering very much in the long run unless someone tries to change the status quo of moving abortion to be a federal issue. Right. And the only other policy question that was asked was on climate change and environmental devastation. Um it, it, it seems that Lieutenant Governor Jack Coulter is sort of quoting what he said. He said, my administration will seek to expand our nuclear energy program, including the academic sector where access to a, pop, to a proper nuclear education could provide high paying jobs to thousands of struggling Americans. And then Senator Trash said that as someone with experience in the Department of Agriculture, I know just how important it is that we promote organic farming practices by giving money to small-scale farms and people to use natural pesticides and fertilizer. We can place further limits on the amount of carbon emissions from cars and that he would want to work with public transportation to run all public transportation on 100% renewable energy since too many trains and subways go on diesel and a lot of gas. Governor Garland said, um, just sort of... Um, that's sort of uh, he getting off the ground of the alternative industry framework, one that includes solar, wind, hydro, electricity, and nuclear energy is one of the most important, import, is one of the most utmost importance in allowing an alternative to thrive. This means it, it's about time we started building those wind farms that we enabled households to generate and use the, their own energy for themselves, for their families. And it requires putting together the largest transportation reform in decades, giving Americans access to a competent, and high effective high-speed railway network and working with our states to do so. And I thought the most interesting part of his uh, response was the very end of it when he stated that, and most importantly, it's recognizing that the next generation of technology ought to come uh, from America, be designed by Americans and be built right here in the United States of America. Um, mm. After the whole coronavirus thing, we've seen a lot of pushback on China, and this could be signaling Governor Garland is pushing back on China and that sort of um, 
uh, foreign uh, investment in technology kind of uh, going ahead of us and building things that we depend so much on. So that, that could be kind of what Governor Garland is signaling here. Yeah, I think it's this, our pandemic has really highlighted that we can't be so reliant on not just China, but I mean, so many other countries and their industries that the world is a global economy, but at the same time, you can't be that reliant to where if another state's economy collapses or somehow gets locked out of your economy, then suddenly it's crippling. Yeah. I think that's um, a very a bold statement. I think it's definitely being elucidated by the pandemic. It's very much being shown um, as being an issue that we can't uh, be so reliant anymore on on, um, outsourcing as much as we have. And I think that's um, a very, yeah, a very valid point to me. And I think the other thing that um, struck out to me is his mention of climate justice that it's that policies are not just about, um, you know, building a nuclear power plant or having wind farms or even giving scholarships to people to go and, and, and be the next generation of engineers who are going to build that battery that will last for years or something. It's also that climate justice, you know, that we've disproportionately put pollutants and polluting factories and and all of that type of stuff in minority communities. And so it's, you know, it sort of almost goes into the cry that we're seeing today, the Black Lives Matter movement, is that not only is there a police brutality issue, there's a climate justice issue where we pollute the waters and communities in the air of uh, minority communities and don't blink an eye. We think it's fine to make their water undrinkable, the air unbreathable. And so I think that sort of signals to the kind of campaign and policy framework that Garland is is putting forth. Yeah. Um, back kind of a little bit to the foreign policy thing. I think the pandemic has really shown us that while no man is an island, during times of crisis, they'll do their best to protect their people first. And we need to be able to insulate against that. And um, seeing the candidates kind of acknowledging that is very important. Just um, we're seeing kind of a rise of a possible second uh, virus in China. And if something like that were to happen, we need to start preparing for it now and being able to do our own stuff. So it's, it's interesting to see these issues starting to be talked about, even if not directly. Very, very true. And so with that sort of, I guess you would say a little bit of a taste of what kind of policies and debate we might see, let us sort of kind of pivot um, to sort of the same vein of topics, sort of the presidential election, especially now that we know for sure that Dixie is going to be a winner-take-all system do you think there's a path for victory for um, Garland or for Jack or Trash? And what does that path look for for each person, each candidate? I think if I had to pick a candidate whose path to victory is the weakest right now, it would probably be Senator Trash. Um, While his opinion on abortion might help endear him in Dixie, it will probably endear him with the wrong crowd. 
abortion tends to be a quite stark division between left and right in Dixie, um, with most of the right-wing members being opposing abortion and most of the left-wing members supporting it. And Senator Trash, as a left-wing member who is against abortion, seems to clash quite strongly with the current climate in Dixie. Um, if his politics were more moderate, if even possibly if he was uh, an ALC member running under that platform, he might have a better chance in Dixie and the abortion thing might aid him. But I think actually his position on abortion will likely um, isolate him from a lot of the possible base in Dixie and uh, might damn him in his own state. Yeah, I, I don't think, yeah, he ran on a very uh, pro-life platform when he ran for governor and he lost by, I believe, 10 points uh, to Sandoval, who sort of ran on a quasi-pro-choice, pro-life, pro-I don't know. Pro-status <laughs> quo, I think, would probably be the best way to address it. Yeah, it was, he was pro-choice, but also, I mean, his lieutenant governor is pro-choice, but he himself is a kind of a wild card when it came to that issue, but... Again, I mean, Dixie did reject him by 10 points, even though he ran on a very hard pro-life platform. So, I, yeah, I agree that it, it's a very divisive issue, and I don't think it's going to win him as much points in Dixie as he think it might. Um, so speaking of Dixie, now that they are winner-take-all, who do you think is the, the person that's most likely going to be the winner that takes it all in Dixie? I mean, the traditional wisdom is always that Dixie will go right. Um, last month we saw a bit of a shift with the supermajority left-wing um, uh, majority in the assembly, but that was right after the collapse of the Federalist Party. I think that we'll probably see Dixie go um, to Coulter, just like the conventional wisdom would tell us. Um, but, you know, it might change in the coming days. Yeah, I think it's... Um... I think it really could go... I think Dixie's can really go any any way. Um, but I think what's going to be the deciding factor is going not to be Dixie. Um, who's going to win Dixie is who's going to win the presidency. I think because you have one state that is a winner-take-all, and you have the rest that are proportional. When it comes to proportional in a three-person race, it can be very unpredictable. You can, you know, in the North, Garland can have a huge, huge lead. Um, and Jack could come up as his second. But because there's a third person in that, if that third person just gets just enough votes to hit a certain percentage threshold, um, especially if the, the haunt method is being used, um, instead of it being seven votes for Garland and one for jack or or sort of that big gap that gap goes away and it doesn't hurt jack or the second place person it hurts the first place person it takes yeah. the vote from them and it gives it to the third the third person and so so again so again and also jefferson is i don't think there's going to be a big gap i think in jefferson it's going to be more evenly divided in terms of the votes it's going to be you know something probably like i'm going to say four three one the person who has the most votes is going to have four, the second place three, and the last person is going to have one out of the Jefferson votes. And with, and, but again, that's like, 
very close race. The proportional states make it a lot more unpredictable and um, harder when it comes to trying to win, when it comes to trying to get to that, to that golden number 14. It's not going to be as straightforward and you have to play electoral math and when it comes to proportioning out the votes it's going to be confusing but what's interesting this election is with dc being in play if one candidate swept dc but didn't win really many any votes in the other like if the person who wins dc or if the person who gets any votes in DC, whether it be three, two, or one, doesn't get the sort of the lion's share of the rest of the votes, I, that that's it's by the math, it's automatically going to trigger it to go to the House. If because but basically, if the third if the third party candidate being trash, if he wins any vote from DC, it's going to cause it to go to the House just based on the math alone one of the other two candidates has to get at least, each of them has to get at least one, unless it's tied. If it's a three-way tie of each person getting one vote, it makes it very likely to go to the House, not absolute. How do you think the House is shaping up to look after this election? Do you think that, uh, I mean, who, who do you think the House will pick, right? Um, for those of our listeners who are unaware, when the House picks a uh, president, it's not based on the number of members of the House, but rather the statewide caucuses. Um, mm-hmm. So these six Jefferson representatives, the five Dixie representatives, and the six Northern representatives will each come together, select a candidate, and each of those three groups will select their or will announce their one candidate, and those will be the three votes that are counted. So what do you think the House is shaping to look like? Who, who do you think will be favored if it goes to the House? I think it's going to, when it goes to the House, I think it's very likely that a president won't be chosen by the House. And I think it, what's going to happen is one of the states is going to be unable to, and one of the states, I think it's going to be either Dixie or Jefferson. I think the North is going to hold its at least majority of its seats being in favor of Garland. And so the vote from the North is going to go to Garland. But Garland would need to pick up one more state. He would need to pick up a majority of seats in favor of him in either Dixie or Jefferson. I don't see, um, I see it very likely that one of the states, whether it be Dixie or Jefferson, isn't even going to have a majority for Jack. It's going to be where it's, you know, if it's, um, it'll be in Jefferson, it can very easily be two people in favor of Jack, two people in favor of Garland, and two people in favor of Trash. The socialists are sort of rumbling. They're here. They do run in elections. And so I think it's very likely that one of the state caucuses is not going to be able to choose. And if that happens, it's going to go to the Senate to choose a vice president. And of course, that person becomes president. Um. So yeah, I don't think, I think it's very likely if it goes to the House that the people, the three people that are running for president are not going to be president if it goes to the House. I think that's a very very likely scenario. If you had to pick someone right now that will be our president in 10 days, who's it going to be? As we get closer and closer with the idea that it's going to the House, 
that person's going to be Cabin. It's because he's the favorite to win when it comes to um, the Senate. I mean, if it goes to the House, the Senate is going to choose Cabin as its VP. As SVP, it's going to choose Cabin. And because the House is very likely might not be able to choose a president, that would mean that he would be president. So as it gets close to the election and as the likeliness of it going to the House becomes more and more, um, the likeliness of Cabin becoming president increases. What do you, how about you? What do you think about in terms of, so first, can't, if the House is, do you think the House is going to be able to decide? Do you think sort of, do you see the same sort of tea leaves that I see that one of the states is just not going to have a majority? I'm in, I'm largely in agreement with you. Um, I'm pretty certain it'll be Jefferson that's split. I think we have very easily a setting for a three to three split um, is my guess. Yeah. Representative Dallas, she's the only really socialist affiliate who's currently holding office in um, uh, uh, Jefferson. Representative Epsilon, a former member of their party, uh, indications say he's running for Senate. Um, mm-hmm. So it looks like it'll probably be um, a three to three Garland and Coulter split in Jefferson would be my best guess there. Um, and when that happens, we'll probably... Uh, end up going to the house and I'm going to just be in complete concurrence that we'll probably be seeing a president cabin if the current trends hold. Yeah. And I think also, you know, sort of thinking about it is that I don't know what would happen, but that the Senate can also have the same issue of deadlock. If, because if you think, when you think about it, the North will be, um, I think it's. I think Ted is very likely to win re-election. I don't think it's. A, I don't think he has it in the bag. He just definitely does not have this in the bag. But I do think that he will win. I think the North uh, other Senate seat will go to a left, an ALC candidate. So I think Cabin will get the North vote from the Senate. Um, actually, let me take a step back. Does the Senate do do the same type of voting? Sure. So the Senate is different. Um, it's it's uh, it's a complete vote of all of the members of the Senate. Um, in the Twelfth Amendment, it specifies that all the senators vote, but um, the big catch is that you have to have an outright majority of the senators. So not uh-huh. just of uh, there. There is some contest over whether the vice president can break a tie. So that's very interesting. The I other think- big the other big thing is only the first two highest vote receivers will go to the Senate. So in the House, it takes the three highest. In the Senate, it only takes the top two. So we'll probably see um, a former President President Pollitt not end up going before the House. And we might see Senator Trash cast the deciding vote for one of the opponent's vice presidential candidates. Well, I think, and this is skeptical i think that if it goes to the senate and it's between cabin and april and this is assuming that the house and the senate do not have their votes simultaneously if they have it simultaneously and you know and the senate somehow is voting before the house votes 
I think it could have maybe a different outcome. But I think if the Senate knows the person that they're voting for is not going to just be vice president, they're going to be president. I think Valerie will vote for Cabin. I think Epsilon will vote for Cabin. I think Ted will vote for Cabin. And I think Order will vote for Cabin. And there's the four. Trash is definitely not the deciding vote. If the Senate so you don't is, think Valerie will vote for her party's candidate? To know that that person's going to be president? No, I don't think so. Interesting. I think she chose him to be vice pre- her vice president. Um, he, to, you know, out of sort of the four, out of Garland, Cabin, Jack, and April, Cabin is more prepared to be president than April. Even though they're both the VP, VP candidates of their respective tickets, I still think that if you put up April versus Cabin for president, it's a different, it's a different type of, uh, competition. If you put them up against each other for, for, for vice president, it's a little bit different because it's a different job. But the Senate, with the knowledge that the person that they are electing is going to be president, is it's gonna, I think it would be a different outcome. If they, but if they do it before the House does it, and it's really, really up in the hair, up in the air in the House of who, you know, if there's a possibility of whether or not the House is going to decide a president, I think it could be different. And in that scenario, it being tied, it would come down to, I think even then, I think Epsilon, uh, Ted, Order, and then the fourth person being the other northern northern um, senator would vote for Cabin. So as long as Cabin can get the vote of Epsilon, I think then Cabin would be elected. I don't think Trash is the deciding vote. Trash yeah. is also the deciding vote of Epsilon. And also uh, it depends on, like, we're assuming those northern races go that way, which they probably will, but I mean... There is a a world where Trash is the deciding vote. There is also a world where it is split and Cabin Fever himself is the deciding vote. I think that's an interesting question, though, if if he even is the deciding vote. Yeah, that would definitely... There would be some court cases on day one. Yes, because if if it's not the outgoing house that's deciding the um, president, then why would the outgoing vice president be a deciding vote in the Senate. Well, there is a bit of a lame duck session. Um, uh, this has changed a bit since we shortened term limits, but the uh, 22nd Amendment um, specifies that uh, the, well, it's not just the 22nd Amendment, but basically the House and the Senate um, convene their new session on January 4th under the old rules, which haven't necessarily been updated. And then the president takes office January 20th. So there's a 16 day lame duck session in there with mm-hmm. the vice president providing over the new Senate, the old vice president presiding over the new Senate. Uh, so the, so, yeah. the so old very, vice president would be the tiebreaker. It's very true. Yeah. With that, it's very true that he, if he, um, yeah, that's that's quite interesting to think of. That if it comes to some scenario where the Senate is tied, he would have to make the deciding vote. And it's, um, you know, you would probably think, well, oh, maybe he shouldn't vote for himself. But like, who would, who in their right mind wouldn't? Yeah, I who mean, you're only running if you think you're the best person for the office. And exactly. 
it would be a disservice to the country to vote for someone you don't think is the best person for the office. Yeah, I think it's different, like, when you're running for, uh, when you're, like, being nominated to be a speaker or a chair of a legislature, and you sort of, you know, abstain from that vote, that makes kind of sense. But when you are the vice president of the Senate, when you are, you know, the president of the Senate, you are the vice president, and you are constitutionally charged to decide, you know, when they are equally divided. But that equal division is on the question of whether or not you should be president. I think is quite interesting. Yeah. Especially we our constitution very much spelled out that they preside over the Senate in every case except for impeachment. Only because in the question of impeachment of the president, that it's a question of whether or not they're gonna become president. Yeah. And so it's 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 like the weird loophole that we sort of you know, we're very cognizant of uh, a trial for impeachment of the president. Having the vice president preside is a conflict of interest. But when it comes to a vote um, of a potential, you know, the Senate choosing the vice pre- choosing the president is interesting. But yeah. but yeah, it's every every day as things change in. You know, Jefferson, even though it's been a while since Jefferson has been behaving, uh, I'll give it to the Commonwealth. They are doing quite well these past few days behaving themselves. They might have had a week with no scandals. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's almost a week. And so, um, but I don't think that sort of cloud over Jefferson is gone. I think that's still going to be a messy um, election. And and Jefferson and Dixie, it's going to be a messy messy uh house election for sure and that now that the possibility that the house may decide who the president is is just going to make those races just that much more crazy and tumultuous for sure now there was a question you posed earlier about if they'd be voting in tandem at the same time um, mm-hmm. Based on the direct text of the 12th Amendment, I would say the answer is probably yes. Um, mm-hmm. So the president of the Senate shall, in the presence of the Senate and House of Representatives, open all the certificates. These are the electoral votes, and the vote shall be counted. Um, the person having the greatest number of votes for president shall be president. Um, and if no such majority, then the House votes, and it has a very similar procedure. Um uh, the person having the greatest number of votes as vice president shall be vice president if such number be a majority of the whole number. And if no person has a majority, then from the two highest numbers on the list, the Senate shall choose a vice president. So it's very likely the votes will be happening at the same time. So, I mean, that could factor into it because they won't even know what the other chamber ends up doing. Mm-hmm. But my other question is that since it's the incoming House, that uh, an incoming Congress session that decides this especially for the house does the would the house need to elect their speaker first um i would assume it'll probably be presided over by the dean the dean traditionally presides in cases where um there's yet to be elected a speaker and based on the 12th amendment this should be the absolute first order of business for the house is determining this question Mm. So if they can't determine it, if it takes them several days to determine this question, we might not have a speaker until the middle of the month. Which is, and we might not have a president for quite some yeah. time. Yeah, no, that too. 
Um, so I think it's definitely going to, I think and the reason I asked that question is it's going to come down to almost a question of procedure. How does the, you know, there's no, in the house itself, doesn't have any set rules on how to handle that type of a vote. Yeah. And the other question is how exactly do you determine a majority of the caucus from the state? Like if we're looking at Jefferson and we see, um, let's imagine a scenario where there are three members of the Libertarian Party elected, two members of the ALC elected, and one socialist elected. Right. Would the three members of the Libertarian Party be able to claim the vote of their state's caucus if they choose to vote for Coulter? And then you've got two that are in favor of um, Garland and one that's in favor of Trash. Or would they have to have an outright majority? Is a plurality enough? And neither the Constitution nor the rules of the House really have any regards on this. And I think that's so, definitely going to be um, a constitutional question, honestly. Yeah. It's going to be a question, yeah. I think that's a very, very valid concern and possibility that there's going to be either Jefferson or Dixie um, have half of their... Uh, delegation be you know for one candidate and the other half be for another or you know a multiple of others and now not, not constitute like yeah exactly like you said is it a majority of the members or a majority of the voting members you know like that's the that's the question that to me i think that's the difference if it's majority of the voting members it would be then that three out of six could, could constitute a majority because that, you know, three of them are possibly. But it, yeah, it's a plurality, I think is the correct term. But yeah, yeah, the plura, um, yeah. But I, even then, I even think that just it's staying in majority can very much lend the, the question of does that actually mean four out of six, not three? Um, but yeah, and yeah, <laughs> and, and again, so that makes the House races that much more important. It's not like this, it seems now that this election is not going to be about one party trying to gain a majority or plurality of all the seats. It's now going to be about gaining a majority. Getting them where they matter. Yeah, gaining a majority or plurality of a state's seats. It might be easier for the right wing to do this because they've got two parties that are working at it. Um, you've got the uh, Tea Party ha- having endorsed the Libertarian Party's candidate for president. And so you might not see that splitting of the vote in the House, which might end up benefiting the right wing parties. Right. And I think if it goes to the House, I think if it goes to the House... I don't think the left is that splintered that it would be, you know, socialist members of a of a state delegation would not vote for um, Garland because, you know, to, you know, because they want to vote for their party's candidate. I don't think that, especially because even though that even though in the election there is a socialist ticket and there is an ALC ticket generally in the House the two parties work together and caucus together and they seem to have somewhat of a coordinated campaign in the sense of trying not to overlap races. Um, so I don't, 
I think it would it's it would definitely come down to some sort of sort of negotiations between members of the House in those parties of, you know, if we don't coalesce behind Garland or trash. I mean, you know, we never know. The AL the ones in the ALC may some for some reason want trash as president. Um, if they, I think they could, I think they might recognize that they would need to coalesce behind one or the other when it would, if, if it, if it is so possible, especially if both Dixie and Jefferson are in a state where they, it's not clear what that state delegation will vote. I think that's what would cause more issue. Yeah. Um, I, I've been looking over information about the 1825 contingent election. That's what it's called when it goes to the House. Um, so in that scenario, um, there was one instance of a legislative body. It was the Kentucky legislature. They tried to direct their House members to vote for um, uh, in the delegation to choose Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, but the delegation ignored them and voted instead for Adams. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very interesting that even the state legislatures, Dixie's um, controlled by the left wing, and if it was tied there, you could feasibly see them trying to instruct it. But there's been the precedent set that it's they don't even have to pay attention to this. It's a non-binding resolution. Yeah. So it's it's just interesting to see that there are all these ways that you could think, oh, that might be a possible way to break this tie. But there really isn't a way to break a tie if it's brought to a tie in the House of Representatives. Yeah. Or for the delegation. the delegation itself, and I think I brought up the question of um, uh, on our on our the podcast with order, um, sort of like, what if a delegate? Yeah, what if a delegation is just outright tied uh, under the assumption that the house itself sort of is like, you know, if you have six seats, four of you, four of you need to decide. Four of you, at least four of you, have to agree on one person, and that will constitute mm-hmm. your vote if that is the agreement that is made. Or you know, under the assumption we are that if they are, I can tell you. Sorry, but if, I can tell you what I think this means. I think that this means that uh, I, as the House parliamentarian, am going to have to be looking into a lot of historical records to see if I can find any precedent about this situation. Yeah, it, it's definitely uh, if it goes to the House, it's going to be history making because it's going to be that close. I think, and it's sort of like, well, what? Yeah, does the House have to continually? Like what? What happens when it, it not just like the House not be able to vote, not be able to decide? If they're not able to decide, it does devolve onto the Senate, in the sense of whoever is the vice president will become president. But if one of the state delegations is tied and it's just completely deadlocked, no one is willing to budge, and they cannot, one of the states cannot vote for one of the one of the the candidates, and the other two states have voted for different people what happens you know it like it's sort of like can the house say you know state delegations you have 24 hours to cast your vote the north cast theirs for garland dixie cast theirs for jack jefferson is deadlocked they can't decide 24 hours and one minute happens can the house say we are tied we haven't decided we have we you know a president has not been chosen and then the vice president, uh, the Senate elects the, the vice president and the vice president becomes president. Or does the House yeah. have to take the vote of one of the 
of of this of all the states is the house have to wait until one of the states makes its decision and what happens if one of the states refuses so by the 12th amendment um this was back when the president uh took office earlier so it could be it's definitely different now and even more different since we've shortened terms but the 12th amendment specifies that they have until the 4th of the next march uh, the fourth day of the next March to determine their candidate. Uh, I assume we'll figure out some way to convert that based on our current time. And if they can't choose a candidate by then, if the caucuses can't come to a decision by then, or perhaps it, perhaps if they just declare, no, we can't come to a decision, and they just say, this is our decision, we can't come to one, um, they could that could just be when it ends and the vice president ends up as president. Right, right, and I, yeah it's it's so crazy to think that it's pure insanity it is really going to be that's the only way to describe it it's going to be absolute insanity i think if it if it devolves into the house it is going to be absolute insanity and i can tell you one thing right now i am happy i am not a justice of the supreme court Mm -hmm. because whatever happens they're going to have to decide this question i think it's and they're going to face all the political blowback and they're going to have to say it was done correctly or it was done incorrectly. And whatever happens, they're probably going to be where the buck stops. I think, yeah, I think if it devolves into the house, I think it is going, it's, it's inevitable that there will be a court case over something, whether it be what constitutes a majority of a state delegation. If one of the state delegations refuses to do the vote and the house declares that it didn't elect a president, you know, that state delegation arguing hey, the House has to take our vote just because we can't decide doesn't mean that they can just ignore us. Um, So yeah, I see a very many court case potentially happening if this devolves into the House. And what that means for sort of a continuity of government is pretty scary. (laughs) Especially with the idea that I, I, I foresee a lot of interesting upsets in this upcoming house election i see certain people not getting reelected in the house and do we want to talk about that now talk about our predictions for the house yeah i mean especially that that this this potential that it's gonna go on to the house the house elections are now even more important than they normally are and there you have it our analysis of the electoral college and what could very well be the result of the election where no one candidate reaches 14 electoral college votes and the House of Representatives newly elected shall decide or attempt to decide the next president. And so in our next episode, we take a deep dive into um, some preliminary predictions that we can make based on public statements and um, campaign announcements and those who we assume are running for re-election, those who we know are not, and those seats that we know are currently vacant or without an incumbent. And so we take a dive into that, uh, give some analysis and some commentary onto that, and see how we think that's going to translate into the potential scenario where the House elects the next president and sort of how that will work and what possibilities may arise. So stay tuned for the next episode of The Snapshot with Thanos May.